This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. This is the Bite Size Business and Breakfast podcast. Best bits from Monday, December the 18th, where we welcomed into studio the best-selling author and uh, the man they call the COO Whisperer, the founder of the COO Alliance, Cameron Herald, who's uh, here in town, in fact, uh, setting up base here in the UAE. He was in uh, to talk to us about, well, some of his tricks of the trade, the man that they call the mastermind behind hundreds of companies' exponential growth. How do you do it? And what are uh, some of the things we need to remember, the pros and cons? Simon Hacker also joined us in studio. Uh, Simon is the CEO and the founder of Alpha Nero. Uh, he joined us to talk about, well, the misconception about sustainable manufacturing and sustainable retail. They, as a company, have uh, been able to embrace that and basically well, walk the walk that's been talked about a lot, especially at COP28. They've reduced their landfill and yet they've seen their revenues go up as well. He also consults on this subject with others. Also joining us was John Bevan. He's the CEO of Donata Travel Group. He was in a town to talk about, uh, well, what Dubai Airport is expecting during the holiday season and a few of the new initiatives from Donata Travel. And also we had all the latest from the US. Yeah more comments with regards to uh, interest rates, uh, cuts or otherwise, and some interesting language or interesting narrative coming out of the US with regards to the future of those interest rates. Wide runways for soft landings. We've got uh, Katija Hack to help us out with that one. Plus, Elon has been at it again. Mr. Musk, of course. Uh, He's been talking at a conference over the weekend and coming out with some some interesting comments. That's all right here on the Bite Size Business Breakfast podcast. Going to be talking all things uh, holiday season a little later on with the team from Donata. Uh, the crew from Donata will be joining us. In fact, John Bevan from Donata Travel Group will be live in studio to be exp- explain a bit more about what Dubai Airport's expecting, how they are going to handle it, and what uh, we can expect as well. Uh, but then again, and I thought this was a related story, but it's not, is it? It's just another of those bizarre wordings uh, coming out of the US over the course of the weekend. A wide runway for a soft landing. Have you got your head around this one yet or not? Yeah, I love it. I love the expression. It's genius. Um, it's got nothing to do with Donata, is it? Nothing to do with Donata <laughs> at all. Nothing to do with, to do with holidays. Nothing to do with travel. Everything to do with interest rates, um, which uh, we obviously was flagged at the end of last week, the suggestion um, that we are in for a soft landing over in the US, that maybe, despite what Richard Dean has been saying for the last six months, maybe they got it right. Maybe they have managed to curb inflation by rising rates. And uh, now they're going to calm down on that, apparently. There's going to be, um, in fact, the next the next interest rate decision, we could see a drop. And as a consequence, um, President Biden's economic advisor has come out and said that uh, we are going to have uh, that the, 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 basically the Fed has created the environment where we could have this soft landing and that that environment is this wide runway. So the, wide, the analogy. The wide runway is being laid out at the moment for this soft landing. Uh, nothing soft about the 
um, motorcade altercation that they had <laughs> yesterday. That's for sure. We'll have more on that a little later on. But let's get some thoughts and insight from this uh, on this particular subject from the chief economist at Emirates MBD. Katija Hack uh, is on hand this week. So uh, we asked Katija, look, if America is getting the aforementioned soft landing, will the rest of the world also get one as well? And how soon are we going to have interest rates falling, if that's the case. Preliminary survey data for December pointed to a weaker economic environment in the Eurozone relative to the US, where growth in services is offsetting softness in manufacturing. So a soft landing in the US, one where inflation comes back to the 2% target without the economy going into recession, doesn't mean a similar outcome is likely in Europe. What it does mean is that there is very little risk of further interest rate hikes from the Fed next year, and we will probably see rate cuts in 2024. But we don't think those will come as quickly as the market expects, with the second half of the year more probable than the first half. So question, what could that mean for us here in the UAE? This means lower interest rates in the UAE also, which would be a relief for borrowers, but not so good for savers. Uh, And, dare we say, elephant in the room, there's a small election looming over in the United States as well. What does that mean for the election process in the States? There is still a long time before U.S. voters go to the polls in November 2024, and a lot can change in that time. Generally, incumbent candidates tend to do well in U.S. elections when the economy is in a good place, that is, low unemployment and stable prices. However, recent surveys suggest that views on how good the economy is differs quite significantly between Republican and Democrat voters. While inflation has slowed, it is still higher than it was pre-pandemic, and people are facing higher sticker prices. Remember, slower inflation just means prices are not rising as quickly. It doesn't mean prices actually decline. It is also likely that unemployment in the US rises in 2024 as economic growth continues to slow, even if there is no outright recession. This is not a favourable scenario going into an election for an incumbent administration. Katijak, Chief Economist, Emirates NBD. Um, You've also been listening in to a certain Elon Musk. Yeah, bizarrely, he decided to go and speak at a political rally in Italy over the weekend, uh, namely the political party of the Italian Prime Minister. And he surprised everyone with some of his comments. Uh, For example, he defended the oil and gas industry, saying the climate movement has gone too far. Intriguing words. Have a listen to his reasoning to this. I am objectively one of the world's leading environmentalists who does things of action, not talk. I act. So so I feel I can say, as an environmentalist, that the environmentalist movement has gone too far. In that, in the natural extension of the environmentalist movement, if you go too far, you start to look at humanity as a bad thing. You start to look at humanity as though we are a plague on the surface of the earth, which is crazy. He also went on to actually defend the oil and gas industry. I don't think we should demonize oil and gas. We should uh, say, look, that is obviously necessary in the short term and the medium term too. And it'll take several decades to become sustainable. So I think if we just, without getting too worried about it, seek to have a sustainable energy future gradually, then that's what will happen. But I think that some of the environmentalist movement is part of what is causing people to lose hope in the future. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that we should have hope in the future. We should be excited about the future and we should build the future we want. Intriguing stuff. He does like to get quite meta, Elon. Quite sort of, 
I don't know, he's, he's sort of both a humanist and a pragmatist and a technologist. Um, but certainly when, the, when he speaks, the world listens. Yeah, and that's why I think he likes dropping these bombshells, these sort of narrative bombshells where you're just not quite sure what you're going to get from him. He's not actually a very good live speaker. All of that's been quite heavily edited. You know, t- taken out all the ums and the pauses. Oh, he's an um and an ah. He's yeah. a major um and ah. And yet, and yet what he says is clever, I suppose. Maybe that's sort of indicative... Because his mind's racing so quickly, yeah. so he's probably getting thoughts before he can actually put them into word and he's not scripted i mean that is so refreshing because there are literally there isn't a seat with well i mean you speak to them all the time on the business breakfast there isn't a ceo on this earth bar elon who's happy just to speak off the cuff but but he will and that's why he gets himself into trouble he's uh he's box office yes just the highlights this is the bite-sized business breakfast festive season in full swing One place where they're really feeling that holiday rush is Dubai airports, where they are expecting more than four million passengers over the next two weeks. That means daily numbers set to reach 258,000. So where are people heading or are most of them just, frankly, coming here? Let's find out because I'm joined in the studio now by John Bevan, CEO of Donata Travel Group. John, thanks so much for coming in at what is nearly your busiest time of the year. Thank you very much, Georgia. Good to be here. Well, let's talk about this inbound travel to Dubai first. Uh, We hear constantly about how passenger numbers are up, but where are they coming from? What are your source markets? So um, the UK is still our largest source market by a long way uh, and still performing well. But we're seeing a lot of new markets coming in, uh, especially out of Africa, South Africa, Kenya and some other parts. Uh, Egypt uh, is performing well. Um, China's coming back, uh, which is very exciting. Um, and also very interesting is the, the GCC market. So uh, Saudi and uh, the domestic tourism here is, is up this, this winter. That is interesting, uh, particularly the fact that you're still getting your UK visitors, because I know, I mean, certainly my, my dad is one of them. You know, there's sort of the, the geopolitical unrest in the region can unsettle people because they think the countries are closer to each other than they are. But you're still seeing a, a strong UK market. Absolutely. We've actually not seen a lot of effect from that uh, in the early in the very early days. Um, but, you know, the, the UK is a resilient market um, and they love Dubai uh, for all the right reasons. Um, so they'll, they'll keep coming and uh, they love being here. Yeah, they like the sunshine. That's why we're here. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, are people doing those sort of layover stays? Have, that, have those picked up again? You know, might, maybe you're flying from, I don't know, the UK or Europe all the way over to Australia and you decide to stop over here, not just for an hour, but for a few days. Yeah, um, the stopover program, which uh, Dubai Tourism uh, promotes a lot through the season, is working um, and it is very popular. And we as tour operators, we have four businesses in the UK and um, it's really popular even for places like the Maldives, uh, Mauritius, but also, of course, Asia and Australasia. So people will stop. Um, and we're seeing uh, the, the, the amount of people getting off the aircrafts uh, in Dubai has increased. I, th- I think it's up to about 40%, up from 30 35%. So that will be, that will be helping that number. Uh, and of course, is the, is the Dubai tourism's target is to, to get more people stopping here, even if it's for a couple of nights, three nights. Because they tend to spend quite big, don't they? Exactly. They'll they'll stop, treat themselves, um, you know, enjoy enjoy the beautiful hotels we have here, uh, spend some money in the malls, 
Uh, so so works works all around for Dubai. Tell me about those those hotels. Are the people who are coming here, are they choosing the all-inclusive hotels? Is it still that super luxury market or has the country started to attract new more four-star, three-star uh, holidaymakers? So we've definitely seen uh, across the patch that most of the star, the, the, even the five stars are holding their market. But the one that's growing the most is four-star and uh, all-inclusive products. But I think... I think that's not people trading down because the UK market's staying solid on, on its spread across the four, five, and three. Um, but it's it's more the new markets. So we have uh, a lot of Saudi uh, markets coming in. We've got markets, as I said earlier, about through Africa um, and other markets like that. And of course, India. India's a, you know, the, the middle class uh, Indians are traveling all over the world. It's a huge market. Um, and they will be feeding into that, that four-star market as well um, as the five. But So we're seeing a big growth in four-star and all-inclusive. I'm trying to think where the currencies have been at the moment, whether or not the dollar has been strong or, or weak. Has that played in your favour? Because currency exchange can, can make things very expensive or quite cheap. Absolutely. And for the British market, the pound has improved. Um, yeah. and a year ago, it was, it was pretty awful. Well, we're um, all sending money home, won't exactly. we? Exactly. <laughs> so that does play. That does play into it as well. Okay. What are the most popular activities? Because one of the things you guys do at Dinashi is not just the, you know, you don't just do the flights. You know, you entertain people once they get there. Are those doing well? Is that mar- market sector doing well? Yeah. So through our um, DMC, it's Arabian Adventures. Um, we see a lot of activities uh, being booked. Uh, a lot of it is booked on arrival. Um, but what's pre-booked tend to be the popular ones. So um, the the Burj Khalifa, for example, at the top. Uh, if you don't people book like that, that, yeah. If you don't book that for a sunset view uh, beforehand, you don't you don't get in. Uh, and you have to do it at sunset. It's the only time to absolutely. do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you got the water parks, but of course, through Arabian Adventures, we have our desert uh, safari experiences. So dinner dinner in the desert, beautiful sunsets, and now people are looking at the further afield. So the Hatters uh, going up into the mountains. Uh, we do some fantastic wadi tours. Uh, so we've really opened up the products to to include not just downtown Dubai and the activities here, but open it up to the wider the wider sort of Dubai and UAE market. That's interesting because I would have thought that would be good for the staycation market, but it's interesting that people from abroad want to go up into Hatter as well. I tell you what, let's um, look ahead to your outlook for 2024. I've got about a minute left with you. Have you got anything new on the horizon? Any new products? So I think. Generally, uh, in Dubai, uh, it is some of those tours that, yeah. that we're building in. I think the, the big change uh, coming up is the, the multi-centers. The GCC is really opening up, and with Saudi attracting a lot of attention in the press, what we're now seeing is people looking to do twin centers. So, and, and I'll take an, an example of a very local one. Uh, with Abu Dhabi, we used, to have, we used to do day trips. But Abu Dhabi is opening more museums, more attractions, and really one day is not enough. Uh, with all the water parks and all the different things they've got. So we're now seeing people doing a few nights in Dubai, a couple of nights in Abu Dhabi. Um, so then they can really enjoy the destination. And uh, what we're opening up is we're, we're opening up Arabian Adventures into Oman and soon into Saudi. And the objective there is to really look at the Middle East a bit like you do Asia, where a lot of people go to Asia and do multi-centers. Uh, our view is to really look at opening up the, the whole of the Middle East so you can do multi-centers, Dubai, Oman, Dubai, Saudi, and so on. So, so a lot to come. 
Sounds awesome. John Bevan there, CEO of Donata Travel Group. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. 28 might have come and gone, but still the conversations around ESGs, amongst others, continue, which can only be a good thing. But what about sustainable retail? There is a view out there that uh, sustainable retail costs more. No, says UAE-based Alpha Nero, leading firm in the GCC manufacturing and design of shops, fixtures, shop-in shops, boutiques, and, of course, pop-up stores for high-end global and regional luxury brands. Uh, their CEO and founder uh, of Alpha Nero is Simon Hacker. He's been kind enough to join us live in studio. Simon, thank you for your time. Good morning. Good morning. So let's deal with that elephant in the room, if we can. This view that sustainable retail costs more, is that holding the industry back at the moment? I think it's it's more like a, a mindset that needs to change somehow. Uh, the first thing would be uh, education and training to understand what's the whole manufacturing process, what are the core materials involved, and take the right decisions accordingly, uh, and explain to customers what could be eventually the impact and, and building it into a long-term relationship where the mindset has to change. You and your company, I mean, you've done it throughout your career, the company that you've set up, Alpha Nero, is not just talking the talk, it's walking the walk at the moment as well. Latest numbers, between January and October of this year, you've reduced landfill waste by half, increased revenue by 35%. How do you do it? <laughs> there was a lot of work, believe me. I look a bit tired, right? End of December. That's COP28. <laughs> <laughs> That's COP28 effect. No, I, I think uh, uh, what, what we tried to do in the first place when we understood how important it was uh, to focus on sustainability was to in, invest in innovation, right? And, and the first thing to that was actually a software. Uh, that software allowed us to map the carbon emissions uh, to a project, map also the waste emissions of our projects. And therefore, we had some sort of data that we could really work on as opposed to just like speech and, and, and just basic facts. And, and that really helped us to drive the change within the company and reach those numbers that you were just talking about. And the headcount's gone up as well. I mean, you're well over 250 people now. Getting closer to 300 now. Getting closer, so <laughs> going up by the day at the moment. Because a lot of people will get, equate that to a cost as well. Say, look, if I'm investing into my people, into my staff, then my costs are going to go up as well. Is it a balancing act? I think it's also a matter of, of processes and, and understanding how efficient an organization can be. If you basically deliver faster your projects and you spend more time and reworking on them, then eventually your profitability is going to go up and then you can afford like having more people being involved and scale up your business. This is all a a virtuous situation that you can create. I mean, we've talked about sustainable retail there. Again, that is almost sort of an umbrella phrase. And underneath that, there are so many other elements, including sustainable manufacturing. And again, a lot of people will be looking at bottom line when it comes to manufacturing. Um, Is there a sort of tip point when it makes sense to a business or not? Look, I think to any any business owner, it has to start from a, a conviction, right? You have to believe in it. That would say the first thing. Um, and then eventually you, you start preaching and you start explaining to your customer that it's not only about like having some sort of policies in place or, or trying to please shareholders or, or anyone in the organization. It's more about this is the way I see my business being conducted. I know that on the long run we need this. And therefore, no matter what, this is where the company is going to go to. You mentioned there about the company and almost the company needing to develop that consciousness or be conscious of that as well. Is that something that you can you can you can encourage a company to do, or again, is it their choice that they need to make? 
I, I really encourage uh, companies to do that simply because um, I think you can stand out massively from your competitors. Uh, innovation for me is key, obviously, in terms of development, especially in our field. This is something, manufacturing is, is something which is quite popular here. You have a lot of businesses that can do that. However, uh, doing it in a different way is something that you can really, like like I said, stand out from your competitors. And, and basically, by investing in a green business, not only are talking about greenwashing, but properly investing in tools properly investing in machinery in a new process then you can really like benefit and grow further i mean you're doing it at alfa nero um what about other brands and especially the sort of day-to-day household brands that we are seeing are there the, are there those brands out there that are doing it right and those that are Avoiding the situation? I, I think that there is some sort of transition where a couple of years ago there used to be only, like I said, policies mm. and, and some um, a green vision that were coming out from headquarters, mainly for shareholders and mainly for, for the sake of the company, as opposed to coming down now to manufacturers. So those big brands that we work with that are being like in, installed in, in across the, the, the region. Um, are now finally looking into those details that will make their project a bit more environmental oriented. So as you mentioned there, some brands are doing it right. Uh, You guys are encouraging it with other brands at the moment. What about the consumer? What about the customer at the end of it? I mean, are they demanding it? Are they seeing a difference? Are they making a choice accordingly? It's a good point. I mean, we shouldn't forget that at some point we're also B2B2C. And those customers, this is what they want. They want to have clean products. They want to make sure that they're buying something which is in line with their ethos, with their vision. Uh, and, and they're asking as well. They can no longer go to um, a brand that doesn't care about the way the product is being manufactured or the way it's being displayed. So uh, brands have to take into account the entire ecosystem now from product to store. For retailers out there at the moment, um, for those setting up shop, etc., or looking for refurb, refit, re, um, uh, reproof at the moment, what are the sort of some of the innovations, the sustainable innovations that one can bring to the market? I would. I believe this is related to the construction itself, like how modular uh, shop fits could be, uh, and how we can reuse them eventually or repurpose them later on into a different space. We saw we saw a lot of different locations across shopping malls, um, and therefore, can we shift those things to other shopping malls eventually when the space is going to evolve? So that would be more into a construction aspect, mm-hmm. uh, together with the type of materials that are going to be. Chosen. And it's interesting you mention that because, you know, you're dealing with multiple industries here. You know, we're talking retail at the moment, but then on top of that, you've got construction. On top of that, you've got manufacturing as well. Is there consensus amongst the industries? That's a very good question. We do not necessarily have the full visibility. Uh, I think we operate more at the micro level. So whenever the big buildings are being done and yeah. when even like the GC is being done as well, this is when we get in. Uh, but definitely that would be interesting to have a sort of cartel of all of these industries coming together. Um, will costs come down at the moment? I mean, one of the big conversations coming out of COP28 was the fact that recyclables uh, and renewables are coming down. The cost is coming down uh, in tandem to what's happening with fossils, etc. I mean, can we also see the costs of sustainable retail, sustainable retrofits as well? Uh, the, the costs that are a concern to retailers, are we seeing them come down at the moment? I hope so. I think it's more about a demand uh, thing where uh, environmental-oriented product needs to go down as well. Eventually, if we keep on asking for more sustainable wood or sustainable paint or all of this equipment that are coming, then eventually the, the cost will go down as well. For the time being, we're talking about a 15-20% premium. 
Finally, um, you mentioned and highlighted the fact it's been a big year for Alfa Nero. It's been a big year for the UAE, uh, all wrapping up with two weeks down at COP28. What were your big t- takeaways from COP? Um, I think what you highlighted in the first place, which is finally it's coming to a business level. Mm. And it's not only government, it's not only something that business operators and business owners are, cannot necessarily like uh, feel. This is something that they can really implement, and that's very interesting. And for a business owner in that space, and of course based here in the UAE, was it a good focus on businesses like yours here in the UAE? It was. It was, um, especially because we're about to open a new factory also, which is very much like uh, environmental oriented, solar panels, very advanced, I would say, in those things. And it puts like some sort of uh, highlight on all of the constructions and other businesses that really want to invest and focus on now. So definitely. Listen, you've got a couple of weeks rest before 2024. So Simon, we'll let you get to that rest now. Thanks so much indeed for joining us live here in the studio. Simon Hacker is the CEO and the founder of Alpha Nero. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We are turning now to look at how you can get better at business as you enter the new year. Now, that's whether you're the owner of your own company or uh, if you're leading a team, because we're joined now in the studio by the COO whisperer, Cameron Harold. Now, he is the best-selling author of six books, including the second in command, also the founder of the COO Alliance. He is much in demand as a public speaker, mentor and coach, having built several $100 million companies, including a global consultancy with clients, including a big four wireless carrier and, intriguingly, the Qatari monarchy. Good morning, Cameron. Thank you so much for joining us in the Business Breakfast studio. Hello. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I did some work with the uh, Qatari royal family about six and a half years ago and walking through how to build a world-class company culture inside of their businesses. That must have been a fascinating time six years ago to, to be over there. But I mean, one of the one of your sort of key elements to your business is mm. advising companies, not just countries, but companies right. on on how to launch themselves. Do you have a sort of set of keystones that you suggest when it comes to uh, improving your business? I do. And it's one that most companies kind of don't really understand until they really understand it. And it's that the number one thing to focus on is not revenue. It's not profit. And it's absolutely not your customer. It's to obsess about your employees. And if your employees are super happy, super engaged, super aligned, if the employees really feel loved, your employees will go through brick walls for you to build your company. So it's all about growing the employee net promoter score first, customer net promoter score second, and the revenue and profits all come from there. You're different in that quite often when people focus on how to improve a business, they focus on the CEO, mm-hmm. but you're like all about the second in command. Mm-hmm. Um and I know that lots of people suggest that, you know, success all comes down to staff. You know, it, it, that, that, that sort of not necessarily is as new as one would expect. But what are the practicalities? You know, you say you want to get more out of your employees, but how do you make them happy? How do you make them walk over hot coals for you? So the first thing I do is I flip the org chart upside down. I put the CEO at the bottom of the org chart, almost like an inverted pyramid with the managers and directors above them and then all the frontline employees above them and the customers at the very top of this inverted pyramid. So our job is to grow people and to assist them and to help them to grow their confidence, to grow their skills and to support them, not to manage them and hold them accountable. I'd rather hire accountable people and then support them and let them do their job. So when employees are feeling that love, when they're feeling that support, again, they're going to work harder. 
What are the core skills they need in order to gain that confidence? At the manager level, it's to understand situational leadership, which is the ability to adapt your leadership style on a project-by-project basis, the ability to handle coaching, one-on-one coaching, delegation, better time management, ability to manage conflict, and then communication styles. So it's how to actually understand the different person and how to adapt your communication and your leadership style. And when you go into companies to encourage this sort of culture, mm. how does it work? Do you do workshops? Do you, does it take a long period of time? Do you, you know, work over many months with yeah. companies? Most companies can't afford me on a daily rate to come in and do workshops. I have a course called Invest in Your Leaders that they put a lot of their employees through, or they hire me to do speaking events, either in person or remote, to get into their groups that way. A lot of them are also buying copies of my books for their teams, but I think the course is probably the number one way currently. So with your C-suite execs, say somebody, you know, is in the C-suite now, they're having mm. a lesson, they're on their, they're usually on a commute, they're driving somewhere and they're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm just so fed up with my employees, which is how everyone feels at the yep. end of the year, you know, we're all a bit sick of each other. <laughs> you know, how can you step out of that slump and, and go, no, I'm going to galvanize these people? Well, the CEO's job is to remember that their title is to be the chief energizing officer, not executive officer. So their job is to show up every day and infuse the organization with energy. So they have to walk in the front door and every single day think, what's one thing I'm going to do to drive energy into the group? And that can be praising people, showing gratitude, thanking people, celebrating successes or growing them, growing their confidence. When they do that and they infuse that energy, that momentum creates momentum. Does that translate to profits or does it just translate to a really nice company atmosphere, which which has its benefits? Both, but in a huge way, it translates to profits because when employees feel loved, they'll go through brick walls to build the company. They'll help the customers. They'll go the extra mile. They'll work harder. So you get a higher return on that investment. But if all you're doing is holding them accountable and you're obsessing about the customer, employees always feel like they're number two. They don't feel as loved. So I personally respond very well to praise. Mm. So that would probably work for me. Your love language. It's my love language. But the other thing that would definitely work is money Well, and <laughs> for leaders, most people. Leaders need to understand their employees' love languages, right? Okay. Is it words of affirmation? Is it physical touch? Is it um, praise? Is it quality time? What is it about the employee that they're going to respond to? I love the, I love the, I've never heard of love language being used in a work context. Obviously, it's a it. big marriage sort of uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, people learn before they get married when they do those courses. We're all humans, right? We're all 16-year-olds trapped in adult bodies. So when we can connect with the 16-year-old employee and really they'll st- start to respond to us in the way that we're looking for. How can you tell if you're getting it right Will they just smile at you a lot? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's they're going to say they're going to say yes before you ask the question. You're going to see them coming to the door and asking, not permission to do things, but can I can I show you my ideas? Because they're excited about their ideas. They're they're not going to feel like they're getting shut down or pushed away. They feel like they're being encouraged to continue to add. Now. You mentioned there that most companies can't afford to have you sort of mm. in every day. You, you do the sort of leadership style talks and then you distribute, you know, people get the book. And, and I know that lots of people will receive business books as presents. We were talking, mm. Tom and I were talking about it this morning, you know, for men, it's a standard present, socks, right. Maltesers and a decent book, you know, that's in the top 10 of the nonfiction, usually. Um, or people do, you know, we're all heading towards the holidays now. People might buy a book for themselves and from the business section sure. in order to read over the season. I mean, they won't actually read it, but they'll buy it. Um, do you, th- I'm always a bit circumspect about self-help books, so mm-hmm. to speak. That's probably because I'm a fiction reader. But do you think that these types of skills can actually be taught through the, through the form of a book? 
It depends. If you're a person, there's auditory, visual, and kinesthetic learners. So if you're an auditory learner, you'll learn from reading. But if you're more visual, you'll learn from watching videos or speaking events or courses. But books can be a part of the learning cycle. But if you like fiction and you like learning, I'll give you one of my top business books of all time. It's called Endurance. It's about um, Albert, sorry, it's by Albert Lansing about Ernest Shackleton's voyage to Antarctica. And it's a true story, but the story and the leadership lessons that come out of that book are absolutely profound. It's one of the most gifted books I've ever given out. The Endurance. It's called Endurance. Endurance. Well, that sorts out Tom's Christmas present for one. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Absolute pleasure to have you join us in the studio. Thank you so much for your time. You've just been listening to the voice of Cameron Harold. He is the COO Whisperer, author of six books, including The Second in Command. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.